Hey guys, welcome back to the Alternate Oscars. I am your host, Gabe Guarin, and with every episode, I, along with a special guest, will be celebrating and rewarding our favorite films of each year starting in 1928. We'll discuss our brief thoughts on each film we nominate, and comment on the actual Oscar year and some fun details on the ceremony. A few rules we always follow. We will be strictly following the reminder list of eligible releases. Those can be found on the website and the Oscar goes too. The amount of categories will also grow over time as a sort of tie-in to the Academy's evolution over time. And one last thing to note. From 1927 to 1933 and most recently in 2020, the Academy has had double years for varying reasons. We will not be doing such on this podcast as I feel it would be a bit of a disservice to both years to do that. This will actually be the last double year covered on this podcast for quite some time. With all that said, my guest today is going to be Emily Blakowski. She's primarily a book reviewer who writes for the website Book Reviews by a person who reads everything, but she also has a passion for film. Welcome, Emily. It's such an honor to have you on this podcast. Thank you much, Emily. Thank you for having me. So, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Um, yeah, I was just watching a lot of movies uh, today. Uh, fortunately, there was a power outage in my house at last uh, I wasn't able to get all of them, but I managed to go through most of them. That's good to hear. So, today we are going to be talking about the movies of 1933. And... I thought we should start with the question, what were your favorite films from this year that were not eligible for the Oscars? This applies to any film released in 1933 that was not on the reminder list of eligible releases. All right, well, my favorite film that wasn't eligible for the list was Flying Down to Rio. Oh, it is so good. It was the first film that Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers together even though they're in supporting roles like just their presence alone just makes the film absolutely worth it and i know you're going to talk about that for the next episode since the song the karaoke was nominated for that song and it is a wonderful song and just a wonderful dance with it too that's really nice to hear somehow i wasn't aware of its oscar nomination and i have to look that up now but it does sound like it does sound very interesting mm-hmm. and like something you'd expect from a typical Darren Rogers musical. Yeah, and I think it pretty much uh, it just spurred on the rest of their uh, partnership for like over 15 years, and I find that to be really amazing. And I'm looking forward to watching more Darren Rogers. Absolutely. I'm actually blanking on the movies I watched that weren't eligible. It's There are a lot of foreign films and two that are coming to my mind, but I can't specific, specifically remember the titles. They are films by Max Ophuls and Fritz Lang. Mm. And yeah, they were both really good, but I have to look up the titles on my own time. I did not prepare for that. Or at least I wasn't eligible on the list, and actually wouldn't be fully released until 1935 was a film called uh, Zero for Conduct. 
is a French film that was produced in 1933, but a lot of the censorship that happened in France because of subject matter. I thought it was very interesting. It was it's about these uh, boys that are in this uh, really austere boarding school and they decide to rebel. And it's only 40 minutes long, so yeah, you can really go to bed. <laughs> I meant to watch it, but I couldn't find it on one of the pirating sites that I usually go to. So I'll eventually get to it. So with that being said, how about we get into our nominees? I am perfectly fine with that. Let's go right ahead. Yeah, I can do that. All right. So for my nominees for best sound recording are 42nd Street, Duck Soup, Gold Diggers of 1933, The Invisible Man, and King Kong. It's a little hard with sound recording because there's so much that goes on to it, but I think I just really like how like the music and dance are very much, uh, they just sound good. They, they, they just sound good on there. Duck Soup, I really like how times where uh, like there's times that sound is really like integrated into the comedy. Like uh, there's a scene where uh, Groucho tells uh, or it's uh, Groucho uh, gets Chico to be uh, the Secretary of War and and uh, Groucho asks him what they should do with the standing army. Chico says or it's like oh we should or, or, uh, what kind of army should we have and Chico says, we should have a standing army so we can stay in that chair. And it has the implication that Groucho threw him down a pair, a flight of stairs. Just like, I love that part. And the figures of 1933, a lot of the sound I really liked uh, because of what I said about 42nd Street. It just, it just all sounds good, especially during the musical numbers. Wonderful. And the Invisible Man, oh, it's just how spooky. They really make a very eerie vibe, especially uh, whenever uh, uh, the Invisible Man is basically terrorizing everybody. It's just wonderful. And then King Kong? I mean, King Kong. That's all I have to say. Yeah. I would agree with you that it's sometimes hard to describe some of these nominees because sometimes they just speak for themselves. But there is a lot to be said about just appreciating the intricacies and nuance that go into something so seemingly basic as making a monster roar or making a monster sound creepy or recording music really well. With that said, my nominees for Best Sound Recording are 42nd Street, The Bitter Tea of General Yen, Gold Diggers of 1933, The Invisible Man, and King Kong. So, I think I'll just bunch 42nd Street and Gold Diggers of 1933 into the same description because there are so many similarities. But, again, the music is so well recorded the little smaller character moments are also really well recorded. 
it just sounds proficient and incredible. And King Kong, like you said, the monster, the roar, still lives on and endures. And the dogfighter planes, it is, I just love that sound from the, those 30s movies. Like, it is just such a moment in time, and I just love it. And then, The Bitter Tea of General Yen. I like that it's so unusual for Frank Capra, even knowing that very early in his career he was a bit more searing and audacious and electric. And aside from the yellow face, which is obviously problematic, I enjoyed the atmosphere. And I also thought the sound work really stood out, whether it be people rushing past each other, the trains, the war scenes. The sound work is incredibly innovative and well-structured. And then the Invisible Man. It's minimalistic, but appropriate for a horror movie. There's just... It doesn't overstate anything, which I appreciate. So yes, those are my nominees. Next up is Best Cinematography. So for Best Cinematography, I have Gold Diggers of 1933. Because oh, and a lot of how the musical numbers are shot, I just absolutely adored. Particularly with You're in the Money. Especially when they're doing like the arms, I think that was just really cool. I like the David Howard and like Ginger Rogers. And also remember the clock. Just how they pan out and just the shows that everything. It was just beautiful. It's like every part of those details was always the And I have the invisible man. I mean, they made it work. They made an invisible man work on screen. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's times where it can be a little cheesy, but I can say it was, I can see how innovative it was for that time and that subsequent movies like Topper really took hold of that, of those special effects and just perfected it. So that's my reason for that nomination for the invisible man. And Little Women, no, it just, it's a little hard to state about the cinematography for Little Women, other than it's, it just is just shot well, like, you have, like, close-ups at the right times, and, like, and you just, like, it, everything, like, every, like, decision they made cinematography-wise just made sense. Like, you know how you watch certain films, and you see a close-up of something where there shouldn't be a close-up and or there should be a close-up where it's like everything just made sense like just of the overall story really of that. and another nominee i have is king kong i mean 
King Kong. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't really have much explanation other than it's like, I mean, they make King Kong look terrifying, especially when taking a Fey Ray out of her room and climbing up on the Empire State Building. I mean, I don't think there's much more to say about that. <laughs> and then finally, private life of Henry VIII. And I, I think it's just, it's just shot well. That's all I have to say about it. Again, I'll agree that sometimes it's hard to come up with things that seem so obvious on the surface. But you do put it as well as, as you possibly could. So my nominees are Gold Diggers of 1933, The Invisible Man, Little Women, King Kong, and The Private Life of Henry VIII, the Eighth. So, when it comes to Gold Diggers of 1933, there are so many standout moments. Like you said, the, the opening scene, that opening musical number, We're in the Money with Ginger Rogers, and it is just such a gorgeous sequence. And I go back to it so many times. It is masterful work and the cinematography plays a huge part in that and then the invisible man there is just so much of that control of mood and atmosphere that you would see from both james whale and arthur edison they succeed in capturing just the right tone for the movie it is so off the edge of your seat, unnerving. You feel the terror that Jack brings into this dilapidated cottage. And it's so terrifying often. And then Little Women, I think, fits into the sort of reflection on nostalgia and young adulthood that the movie focuses on so much. There's so many scenes that convey a lot of warmth in the cinematography and also a certain idyllic innocence during the winter times. And then King Kong just has the cinematography you would want and expect from a grand epic. Like, so many scenes are breathtaking. And then the private life of Henry VIII is just so lively in its camera usage. It's just a lot of fun. Well, that's awesome to hear about all of that. And you did a very good job. Thank you. Thank you. So next is Best Art Direction. Ah, Best Art Right. I have for best work direction, I have Little Women, The Gold Diggers of 1933, The Invisible Man, King Kong, and The Private Life of Henry VIII. With Little Women, like, 
the moment that you see the opening credits, like it really much conveys the nostalgia that you were talking about for that idyllic childhood. And, and just everything, like just how the sets are designed, they just have this kind of warmth. Like you, like you're in this home of this family that absolutely adore each other, even though there's times that it could possibly be in each other's throats, but it's just a family that is very close to one another. Uh, just and it's just warmly conveyed through the sets there. And right, Gold Diggers of 1933. It's 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 we can't. I know we go back to like the opening number, but just the set design of that opening number is just how much money can they actually put on that opening scene? that set and even with the set for uh, remember the forgotten man particularly when joan blondell is just singing and she's just on this like alleyway uh, they just make it so like gloomy and depressing and it's really conveys the uh tone of that song and just overall mood and then the invisible man oh yes the sets do really much convey of that classic universal horror film and it's like, yeah, there's times with sophistication because, you know, scientists and everything. But it's just those, it's just everything just, like, it's what you would expect of a universal horror film. Then King Kong. I mean, looking at Skull Island, look at that. I mean, it just looks just what you would expect of, of a grand epic film from that time period. And even I can see how much influence has gone into others and not just every other King Kong iteration. And then the private life of Henry VIII, it's just the sets just look so good that you can actually just transport yourself to that court right then there. You just need a time box. You just need uh, the TARDIS and then you just go off and there you are. Agreed on all of that. They're all incredibly well-designed movies, and I think I have the same list of nominees as you there. So, like you said about Little Women, again, I'll repeat many of the same things that I just said about the sense of nostalgic childhood, the idea that idyllic time in your life when you didn't have to worry about so many things and yet tying it into these young adulthood when you have to take on so many responsibilities. And I love how it's all tied into this period in history and it all fits the house looks cozy and it's just charmingly rustic and then gold diggers of 1933 i think the set design truly shines in the musical sequences and also conveys a grit in places like apartments study offices and you can just sense the feeling of partying on in the midst of all the hardship that that was going on in the 1930s with the Great Depression and all. 
and then the Invisible Man. The again, use of a single house, even exterior shots, just exude a coldness. But you are tempted to just peer in to the surroundings and just see what is going on. There's so much attention to detail going on, and I loved it all. And then King Kong, like you said, Skull Island. That's all I need to say about that, but it is just a grand work of a showman done in the best sense possible. There is such a commitment to the adventure part of the movie, and that is definitely reflected in the production design. And then the private life of Henry VIII. Again, so much attention to detail. You want to be transported to this time just to get a sense of what it felt like. Mm-hmm. All right, that's awesome. So I want to move on to the best adaptation. Yes. All right, let's do this. So best adaptation, I have Dinner at Eight, Design for Living, the Invisible Man, Little Women, and State Fair. So, Dinner at Eight. Uh, so, watching this movie, I expected some things from the guy who co-wrote the play, George S. Kaufman, is that it would be extremely witty. And my god, the film conveys very much of that wittiness, especially with some high society people planning for a dinner party. And... And I think it's also, and once we get into like the actors for it, I've kind of noticed that without those good performances where they really bring the words to life, like the movie is kind of like, there's not much that's happening, but it's the actors that really bring the words to life. I'm glad that every person who was cast in that movie, they all got their chance to shine. So yeah, I know it's a little digressing, but, but uh, long story short, just the actors just bring the world to life. I couldn't be happier. I have Design for Living. Ah, that is just a really interesting concept that they... I'm, I'm, I'm surprised that even for 1933, they managed to actually adapt that uh, play into a movie. I'm surprised they got released and not like... I don't, was it even banned or something? But it seems like it would be, it's definitely a film that would be seen as risque, but I'm just glad that, I'm glad for its existence. I'm glad that it's surprisingly modern for a time. Like, I feel like we should have a remake of Design for Living. Like, how would that go with an audience for 2021? I mean, there are people who are in polynamorous relationships. I'm sure they could easily relate to that. And it seems like it's very, they normalize the situation there and that everybody has the same relationship, which I, I, I couldn't be happier on that. And then I have The Invisible Man. Now, I'm gonna be very honest. I've never read the book, The Invisible Man. However, I can see how terrifying it could possibly be. 
Oh, especially with Claude Rains, like he just, he really just brings the words to life as the invisible man. It's like, there are times where I was just terrified. Like, it's like, I don't want to go near that. I, I'd probably be more like a, the innkeeper lady who's just like screaming all about, ah! <laughs> Oh God, oh God. Oh. <laughs> hmm. All right. Okay, Little Women. Now, this is a book, now for the adaptation, uh, one that I've actually read the book. However, this was years ago and several adaptations, including the 2019 version. The night, this particular version, I think it's really good at really conveying Joe's character, who is obviously the main, who is the protagonist of the story. There's no doubt about it. And I really like how they really focus on her transformation from being a tomboy into becoming a woman. Even though I'm, there's plenty of times where she resisted that. It's like, she's got to have to mature. She has to be a woman. And they really do capture the scenes in the book, especially just sisters being sisters. I mean, I remember the times when um, my sister and I would bicker about stuff, but there were other times where we would be loving and have the conversations with stuff. It really captures the moment that, like you said, the idea of And then stage fair. Now, this one, again, I have not read the book, but I, I will get around to it. I'm sure I will. But just an entire film about being at a state fair and for several days and just all the things that are going about it. I mean, watching it, I can easily see how it could actually be adapted into a musical by none other than Rodgers and Hammerstein. I mean, they're the big names of Broadway, at least for the 40s and 50s and how their stuff really is influential to this very day. But yeah, to the story, I mean, oh God. It's, it's just very, like, I, I, I guess, ah, just a, it's just a, at a loss for words. I think it's just a very simple story of a family going to a fair and just competing in everything that happens. Uh, when it comes to something like State Fair, I thought it was fine disposable entertainment for, like, the first half, but then the second half, it just dragged. Like, like, I was just so tired, like, in that second half. Like, it felt like it was... It felt like they were struggling to come up with enough plot to fill in and justify that last stretch. Mm. And I just got so bored that, yeah, it really didn't work for me. I am, I find it hilarious that it was preserved in the National Film Registry. It, I just imagine there are other films that seem a bit more significant were more deserving of an entry into the National Film Registry of historically, culturally, and artistically significant movies, like other Best Picture nominees and such. But, you know, it is what it is. As for design for a living, I do agree with many of the points you brought up about 
polyamorous relationships and how that movie normalizes it and treats it as humane and something that is healthy and can bring happiness to people just like any other type of relationship that you know is good for you and everything and I'm just reminded of say Taika Waititi's relationship with Tessa Thompson and Rita Ora and the sort of frenzy that Twitter went into after discovering that photo. You know what? That's and a remake of Design for a Living. I would pay to see that. That would be wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it would do good for a remake. I'm surprised we haven't had a remake of this movie because well, it is, it is just perfect. It is enough time has passed. It's the perfect amount of underrated, and yeah, I want a remake of it. Of course, so like I mean, this would be the perfect time. I mean, there's so many remakes of this and that. It's like, come on, let's bring this into the fold. I I pay to see that. Yeah. And then you bring up good points about actors being able to enliven material that would otherwise seem a bit stagey. As good of writers as, you know, Herman Mankiewicz, Francis Marion, George Kaufman, and Edna Ferber all are, and you can definitely see their different distinctive styles all coming together in that single movie. It really takes great actors to make it feel like there's more going on than there actually is. Because even with a great script, if everything else is non-point, you might just be thinking, wow, that's great dialogue, but I don't really feel like the movie's not really capturing my attention. But you don't get that feeling with dinner at A's. Yeah. I mean, that's what they, they should have done. They should have looked at dinner at eight and kind of did it that way. Yeah. So, my nominees are Dinner at Eight, Design for a Living, The Invisible Man, Lady for a Day, and Little Women. I have said my pieces on Dinner at Eight and Design for a Living already. So, I will say I have more, actually. I do think it's interesting how Ernst Lubick and Ben Hecht are able to adapt their styles onto Noel Coward's play. And their styles are a bit different from Coward's, I imagine, but also while well, fitting enough into his catalog and his style. Obviously, I haven't read the play, but... I do think they do a good job of adapting the text and capturing a lot of the best elements. And then Dinner at Eight, like I said, you can see the stylings of Herman Mankiewicz, Francis Marion, George Kaufman, and Edna Ferber. Like Francis Marion was a very humanist, humanistic writer. 
and Herman Rankiewicz had a certain wit to his stylings and his dialogue. And George Kaufman brought a lot of sophisticated humor and Edna Ferber brought a social consciousness, which you would see in stuff like Giants and God forbid, Cimarron. And again, like I said, it really works and comes together here. Like, this is a perfect chamber piece. And I just love this, the setting of people sitting at a dinner table and just conversing. I just love that setup. And I think it makes for great material to work with. And then with the Invisible Man, I feel like it's easy to take scripts for horror movies for granted and just focus on all the scares, but you need a great script to make the scares believable, the characters believable, and keep the audience thinking about what's going on instead of just aimlessly taking in what they're seeing. And then Lady for Day. I feel like compared to some of the other films that we nominated, it works as a somewhat smaller character study and the stakes are not huge per se, but I liked how refreshingly low key it was. And I think Robert Riskin knows the exact place to start and end with this script. Like, nothing feels gratuitous or dragged out. It's another film that knows its pacing and runs with it. And I appreciate that. And then Little Women. I think my one criticism is that we don't get more perspective from the other March sisters, but you still get a sense of family. You still get a sense of community. And all the other aspects that you would want from an adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's novel. And it just works so well. Yeah. I definitely agree with you on the little women. Like, I mean, yes, there's a lot more emphasis on these in the than like, like the 2019 version, but it's like, there's no reason why we have so many adaptations. The PBS version and the BBC version and all the other versions that are all around you. I know you brought up a good point with the invisible man, it's like you really do have to have like the really gotta take that granted, especially with the folks of the And Lady for a Day, I have not seen that film, but you know, it's like oh, I would probably do that too. I mean with Frank Capra and Alright, so are we ready for the next category? Yes. Alright. Next up is Best Original Story, which is basically original screenplay, but this is what it was called back in 1933. Fair enough. And I think a little, little more of my bias is going to be showing, where I'll have Duck Soup, I'm No Angel, King Kong, The Power and the Glory, and The Private Life of Henry VIII. And I will say this right now, the reason why I say my bias is showing, because I love Duck Soup 
It's one of my favorite Marx Brothers films. And I'm glad I, I requested that for you to see uh, some time ago. And I'm glad to, it sounded like you enjoyed it. I remember. Yeah. But yes, I, I love the story. I love like the satire of it, particularly how it's like a blend of the Ruitarian fantasy and the dictator craze that was going on in there. And Groucho does, amazing. he makes a great dictator. <laughs> oh God, <laughs> it's like, is that a bit of an oxymoron there? Uh, but a lot of the- I'll get what no worries. Okay. Yeah, a lot of the jokes there are just perfectly written. And I also have to give credit to additional dialogue done by Arthur Sheikman and Matt Perrin. Matt Perrin would go on to write the Addams Family. A lot of those kind of groucho jokes there. It's just wonderful. And I do have to also give credit to Burke Kalmar and Harry Ruby because for people who do know their names, they're they're primarily songwriters. They wrote beautiful songs like Who's Sorry Now and I Want to Be Loved by You. But people don't seem to realize that they are good comedy writers. And some of the best Marx Brothers films actually had some hand by Kalmar Ruby, is particularly with their songs. And the songs are great in there. I, but I wish that uh, they did have a best song category because I would definitely nominate Free Don't Use Going to War. It's just a beautiful setup on war satire. And hey, it actually advances the plot. Hey, you don't see many songs back in those days actually advancing the plot, eh? <laughs> but anyway, so I'm just getting all my uh, love for duck soup out of the way. So next would be I'm No Angel. There's only one line I have to quote. Why don't you come up and see me sometime? Enough said. <laughs> Enough said. Then King Kong, I mean, there's a reason why people do so many adaptations of it. It's a, a story that's pretty much woven into, I, I want to say American mythology, much as like the Wizard of Oz. Like, you know the story, I know the story. It's just, it's just so ubiquitous in pop culture. And it's just a story about these people trying to get an ape, a giant ape, and then held him for captive, and then he he sets off free. I mean, that's it, and people are just so still intrigued by it this very day, and it really just have a whole a lot of power to that. And then the next would be the power and the glory. And this one, it is it's just the concept itself of just a man looking back on his life and seeing how everything's going wrong. It's almost like it's it's in a way, it's like, it's a very dark, you know, darker version of It's a Wonderful Life. And I, I do really like that take on it. Even though I'm sure, yes, I know Power of the Glory uh, was before It's a Wonderful Life. But still, I, I, I really enjoyed that concept. And then The Private Lives of Henry VIII. I mean, I, I do want to ask, has there been any like movies prior that were about Henry VIII, or this was maybe like one of the first ones that the general public knew about. Uh, I, not that I know of. Maybe there was some lost silent version, but I'm pretty sure this was the first. Uh, well, 
there's a reason why Henry VIII is such, there's so many things written about him, some both fiction and nonfiction, and you can easily see why. He was a man of, well, a huge personality and, and of, and Anna is of his weight, but that's besides the point. <laughs> but his story is also just very ubiquitous in the way that they convey that story with all of his wives, except for the first one, surprisingly. Hmm, I wonder why they cut out Catherine of Aragon. Eh, I don't know. But I just, I don't know there's a reason why his story's being told, and you do have to thank this film for that. Agreed with all of that. My nominees are Duck Soup, I'm No Angel, King Kong, The Power and the Glory, and The Private Life of Henry VIII. So, Duck Soup, again, it's just a great Marx Brothers movie. And the political references might not ring immediately for modern audiences. There's just such a zany, irreverent energy. And there are so many funny jokes. And there's just such a dynamic to it that keeps it fresh throughout. It's just so much fun. And then I'm No Angel. It's basically for an excuse to, for Mae West to strut her stuff and do her thing. But she just, she's such a great humorist and comedian. It works. Like, the one-liners, even when they're, and double entendres, even when they're obvious, I, I still had a chuckle. I still had a smile on my face. And then King Kong, again, like you said, it's, it is lived on in pop culture for a reason. It is just such an enduring story. And it understands why people go to monster movies. They don't expect a movie getting lost and bogged down in so much mythology. They don't expect like the most overly three-dimensional characters. They just want a gripping adventure story. And that last line, again, another enduring piece of pop culture. And then the power and the glory. Uh, let me pull up my notes. This is an interesting first outing for Preston Sturges. This was his first ever script, and he received seven, uh, 17,500, uh, if I'm saying that correctly, for delivering it to Fox as a completed script. This was at a time when profit-sharing arrangements were unusual for Hollywood, but it helped to give more attention to Sturges, and essentially it kick-started his career. I see this movie structure as a sort of a, almost a prototype for films like Citizen Kane. If you've seen both movies, you might be able to see the parallels. 
especially chronicling the main character's successes and failures. And I also think Spencer Tracy is really captivating as this character. And it's interesting to see him free code before he was typecast as sort of like this stuffy, sort of bullish, overly moral, often religious character in something like Boys Town or San Francisco. I was going to say, hey, at least if we're going to chunk of it, he's paired up with Captain Pepper. Hey, it's the chemistry. True. And then the private life of Henry VIII. Brings a lot of comedy out of its title character. And shows us the fun side of his private life. And essentially turns it into an enjoyable romp, which I loved because it's just, again, just a really fun time. And there's this irreverent wit to it hmm. while also feeling period accurate. There's this level of disgusting humor that doesn't go too far. I'm thinking, like, when I say disgusting humor, I'm thinking of something like, say, an Adam Sandler movie, or... But... Yeah. Yeah, this movie is not like that. It actually has a level of effort put into it. And straddles the line in its humor between being sophisticated and crass. Yeah. So basically, a 1933 version of the Yeah. In a way, I'm almost reminded of something like Tom Jones, like 30 years later. Oh. I'm not sure. Sh- the best picture winner. Yeah, that movie is interesting for a lot of reasons. I like it more than most. I know it's not very popular nowadays, especially on film Twitter, but I think despite its flaws, it is just interesting to take in. And I just bring it up because because you can see how it was influenced by something like The Private Life of Henry VIII. So next up is Best Actress. Uh, best Actress. I have Louis Dresdler from Dinner at Eight, Faye Ray from King Kong, Mae West on No Angel, Miriam Hopkins designed for Living, and Catherine Pepper for Little Women. Now, Marie Dresdler, when I saw Dinner at Eight, I mean, the moment that she came out is Carlotta Vance. It was just, just a little bit screen. Like, you know how there's certain actors that you know that you're going to be paying attention to them? The redress was basically that. And even the first scene, you just like, damn it. basically want the eyeshadow for a time. <laughs> but 
but jokes aside, she is a wonderful actress. And, and even uh, before seeing Dinner in a Pill, like, whenever I thought about that movie, I always thought about the very end when Gene Holland tells Marie Gessler, I read a book recently. I always remember Marie's reaction being like, What? You read a book? <laughs> you read a book? It's like, it's just one of the things that stuck with me for a long time. And, and seeing the film recently is just, it's like, at least I know the concept. And it's like, it's still just, the performance is just as good. And it's like, it really let me down. It's just really wonderful. Then I also have Fay Ray. I mean, this is an epic adventure. And it's just, it's just her performance of, I know it's like basically a dance on this dress, but you know, there's a reason why one of those nice ways to dance on this kind of like the calm keep on down. And you can see that with the situation where you do have the woman really try to put more upon herself. And May West, I mean, it's it's like what you said with the original uh, story. I mean, she's such a good and humorous. It's like you really can't take your eyes off of her. It's like, basically an excuse. I mean, for her to do all that, and she just then Lynn Hopkins for Song for Living. I, I just adore the fact that this. He portrays a woman who really sets the as agency for relationship. And she really, she really asserts herself when, when she really needs to. And I just, I adore the fact of when she gets married to the other guy who wasn't in the Bonnie Anderson relationship, like how, how miserable she is because she doesn't have much control over the marriage. And even just the moment that she takes the flower pot and has the flowers from the TV and just like, I know. And I, I, you could just really sense the And then we have Catherine Hepburn. I mean, it's amazing to me that she didn't think best actress for what year. Spoilers! <laughs> Jump 
over the fence and climb down there, like the uh, like the uh, kind of like uh, the grass. I I forget the thing where you climb down the the, the, the fence. There are the vines, like that vine that's right next to the house. It's just climbing down there and running all that. Amazing. Just awesome. Could you ever find an actress who would be able to do all of that in a book series? Yeah, that's a lot of interesting notes. I agree with all of them. So. My nominees are Marie Dressler for Dinner at Eight, Bay Ray for King Kong, Mae West for I'm No Angel, Mae Robson for Lady for a Day, and Catherine Hepburn for Little Women. I, um, Marie Dressler is playing her usual boisterous self. Like, she has such a command for the room that she's in. No matter where she's in, she just commands the screen and the attention of everyone surrounding her. She just has that stature and that presence and is so good at barking orders and she's just such a stern but somehow also fun figure to have around. You almost want to like have a conversation with her. And then because I love to know. <laughs> yeah. And then Mae West. It's again her usual Mae West thing, but she's so good at it that it's hard to care much. She just delivers her own one liners so well. And it's so funny. And then Bay Ray, as you said, it is sort of a damsel in distress role, but she is good at doing reactions and convincing you that she is interacting with this giant ape, even though the effects might be dated nowadays. And then May Robson for Lady for a Day. She's just so often heartbreaking. She makes you feel for the character. A character whose perspective, at least for the time, you didn't see often. And then Catherine Hepburn is perfectly cast as Joe March. Like, all of her little tics and mannerisms and little eccentricities, perfect for Joe March. And it's not just the surface-level personality or the athleticism that she has displayed in so many films and fits perfectly for the movie. She just has a curiousness for life. She can base Joe's ambitions so well. And she has so many tender, heartbreaking moments, like when she's confronting Meg before her wedding. It is just such a masterful performance from really one of the greatest actresses in cinema. Margaret Dumont is just a very good actress and just very good even a comedian in her own right and that she just has wonderful reactions and just every time like she interacts with Groucho is 
it just she just lights up the room there and it it's just absolutely wonderful and i know that she's more of a supporting actress in their films but this is probably the only time where she was kind of an actress at least qualified enough to be the best actress so i'm, I'm not sure how the academy would feel about that because you know i hope now there's times where there's people who should have been best actress but weren't supporting actress but who knows so yeah should have put margaret dumont on there that's all i'm saying i can definitely see that they are wonderful scene stealing supporting characters so next up is best actor John Barrymore from Dinner at Eight, Groucho Marx from Duck Soup, Claude Rains from The Invisible Man, and Charles Lawton from The, Pri the Private Life of Henry VIII. With Warner Baxter, I love 42nd Street. I was immediately like, the character that Warner plays, I mean, this was a character that I absolutely knew from real life. And when I mean that, I sincerely mean specifically the uh, person who would direct the musicals I did in high school, who was also the choir teacher. He was very much a perfectionist and Warner Baxter definitely conveys the perfectionist almost to the extreme. Because my choir teacher, the, there was times where you could feel like, I, I guess another way of saying is, I'm surprised that my choir teacher did not have a nervous breakdown. And even in my notes, when I was watching 42nd Street, I was like, this guy is definitely going to head for a nervous breakdown. And by the end of the film, I was thinking, I'm surprised he hasn't gone into a nervous breakdown. I mean, he shouldn't have gone there. But it's like, it's it, it conveys the realism of, of really wanting to have the show go up and be as perfect as perfect as possible i mean not everybody would like this character but it's like you know this character anybody who's been in like plays or musicals you know exactly what kind of character that warner baxter portrayed that's all i have to say for that one so for john barrymore i mean it's john barrymore playing john barrymore and i'm even just from the moment you see him with that profile it's like, okay, you're very boring. What do you say? Absolutely. He's just so, so striking. Just a typical Barrymore, a complete ham. <laughs> yes. I mean, I love how it's it's ham, but it's not too hammy. Like, it's it's it conveys the character well, and especially when he's being kicked when he's down like he's down when he he's kicked down when he's down it's it's just heartbreaking for him and just just his final scene it's just like oh no he's gonna do it oh no 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 oh. but he just he conveys that so well i mean it could be quite hammy but no no it's it's the right amount of ham for me and, and of course, 
my bias. <laughs> I, as I've said this plenty of times, Groucho Marx. But people don't seem to realize is that Groucho was a really good actor, particularly in like films like Animal Crackers and The Night at the Opera. Groucho does have some like dramatic moments that he does convey very well. And he's, he's just a very charming pers personality, even if he's just throwing a bunch of insults at you. Like, like, yeah, you feel insulted, but it's like, I'm insulted by Groucho Marx. And it's like, that's like the best feeling in the entire world. And he just, and it's, it's, and also the delivery of the jokes. I mean, there are just so many great jokes in there and he just delivers them so well. I mean, oh, I mean, I, I could go off on a tangent of just list all of my favorite jokes from him, but it's like, no, we, I know we got to move forward on there. So, and, and that I shall do. Claude Rains, oh, you know, the only other film I've seen from him is Casablanca and, oh, like, he, he is so good in that as the, uh, I think he was like the officer who uh, befriends Humphrey Bogart. Oh, he was just good in there. And to think that this was, I believe, his debut film where you barely see his face. And the fact that he conveys so much motion, particularly physically, while he's wrapped in that bandage and has those weird sunglasses. Oh, like, he could be quite menacing there. It's like, oh. It's like, you cannot see his face, but it's like, you can tell like the menace from there. And also I put in my notes, like I noticed that he was having a lot of fun terrorizing people, like just like going off on like nursery rhymes while it's just a pair of pants, like walking down the, uh, <laughs> down the road where the lady's screaming her head off. Like you could just tell he was having so much fun playing such a menacing role as the Invisible Man. And Charles Lawton, I mean, it's it's kind of what you said about the comedic nature of the film. And Charles Lawton does this very well, particularly the scene where he, he's going up the stairs and he's just like ducking. <laughs> it's like, oh, it, it's like, it's, he, Charles Lawton has just such great comedic timing. And, and that's a good reason why I really enjoyed that film. I agree with all your points. I'm so I'll list my nominees quickly. Uh, Wander Baxter for 42nd Street, John Barrymore for Dinner at Eight, Groucho Marx for Duck Soup, Claude Rains for the Invisible Man, Claude Rains for the Invisible Man, and Charles Lawton for The Private Life of Henry V uh, Henry VIII. And again, like you said about Warner Baxter, you can tell this man, like, how does he not have a nervous breakdown? You, you can just see the perfectionist and that feeling of ever wanting everything to go perfectly. And if even the slightest thing comes up, you might feel like you've like completely failed at everything. And then John Barrymore. He is just such a presence and a figure. He is consistently captivating, even overwhelming at times, but it works. It works for this character. He is so effective. He's vivacious or vivacious. He is charming. He keeps you off the edge of your seat. And he's ever so slightly neurotic. 
it's just such a fun performance. And then Groucho Marx and Duck Soup. He just seems so likable. Even when he's hurling insults, he's just so likable. And then Claude Rains for The Invisible Man. Like I said, as Jack Griffin, he is just having so much fun, like, terrorizing people. And he just sounds intelligent. His voice exudes such an intelligence and sophistication. And then Charles Lawton is, frankly, an underrated comedian. If this performance is anything to go by, the highlight I always go to is that dinner scene where he's just, his disgusting eating habits, his disgusting manners are on full display. And it's like, you're just in discomfort as you're watching on this slob. (laughs) And he doesn't give a shit that you're grossed out by how he's eating. And yeah, it's just a fun performance. So next is for Best Director. All right. All right. So Best Director, I have Leo McCary for Duck Soup, Mervyn Leroy for Gold Diggers of 1933, Lloyd Bacon for 42nd Street, Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Sack. I think that's how you pronounce his name, for King Kong, and George Cukor for Little Women. So for Leo McCary, I mean, he's very much a direct, a comedy director with a with style. Like you know how there's directors that have no really sense of style. Like they're not particularly as austere as others. Like Leo McCary is a very austere director, and and from what I've seen from other Marx Brothers films, they don't often work well with those kind of directors. But I will make the argument that this is a very good case for that, where, yes, it's like it, he brings a little more of the visual humor and a common criticism I have heard about Leo McCary's directing style on Duck Soup is that it feels a little too like Laurel and Hardy or it's maybe it's a little too visual sometimes, but it's like, for me, it's like, yeah, I I guess I'm coming from a person who hasn't seen a whole lot of Laurel and Hardy movies or shorts, so I can't exactly say. But from what I have seen of their stuff is that the Marx Brothers take it and do it in their own way, particularly with the hat scene from when they're interact when Chico and Harpo are, are interacting with the uh, lemonade vendor. Like, they have their own spin on it. And that Duck Soup is a little more of a visual comedy kind of film I would say because of Leo McCary and and I love like the spontaneity that Leo McCary is often like associated with particularly with the awful truth is that you can see a lot of the spontaneity like in a lot of the comedy scenes and even like the big musical number with Fredonia's going to war so that is explanation for Leo McCary so I also have Mervyn Leroy it, it goes back to what we said about when we talk about the opening scene and the closing scene. They are just, every bit of directing 
moment from them, or at least in those scenes, it's just utter perfection. Like, it's just every emotion conveyed, like, there's a nice, it just captures a lot of, Ruben Leroy captures a lot of the tone of, like, the optimism of we're in the money, and then the sad, grim reality of remember the forgotten man. It's just absolutely wonderful there. And then Lloyd Bacon for 42nd Street. I really like the decision that they kind of pushed all like a lot of the musical numbers to towards the second half where it's like, it's just focusing on making the musical itself and, and you know, the amount of tension that is conveyed in, in actually making a musical. And it's just wonderful on that part. And then once you do see the products of that, it's all, uh, it's all portrayed so well, like, like particularly the 42nd Street, but the title track, and it's just, it just all looks so visually done well because of Lloyd Bacon, and I give him props for that. And then also have Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schrunsack. It, it's, it's, it, it goes back to what I said about how it's so ubiquitous in pop culture is that every one of their decisions, I mean, just made for a great movie. Just the fact that uh, you do have, I don't know, there's so many good directing moments, like just how like the planes go by when King Kong is just trying to sword them off. Like it's just, there's just a lot of good directorial moments from those two and even just the fact that they were able to make King Kong so terrifying in the way it is. I mean, yeah, it's a little, well, dated, a little cheesy at times, but it's like, imagine how it might have scared an audience in 1933. It's, it, you do have to at least admire the influence that it has on pop culture today. And then George Cukor, now, from what I've seen from a lot of George Cukor films is that he, he tends to be a very intense director. Like, you do get some really good intense scenes. And, and I think uh, Dinner at Eight also has, like, really good intense scenes. But for little women, they're, like, it's not, like, the shouty stuff. But he's good at also conveying, like, the warmth of the Marsh household and just... And just conveying, just just capturing the tone of the book without just like without like putting all of his style onto the film, and I think that's what made his directing of it work. That I agree with. It is interesting that he directed both Dinner at Eight and Little Women because. I guess if you look closely enough, you might see similarities, but there's also crucial differences for more reasons than just the obvious. So my nominees for Best Director are Leo McCary for Duck Soup, Mervyn Leroy for Gold Diggers of 1933, James Whale for The Invisible Man, Marion C. Cooper and Ernest B. Schoedsack for King Kong, and George Cukor for Little Women. I think with George Cukor, again, like you said, you do get that intensity with his directing style. 
but also a level of sensitivity and empathy for the characters. And I feel like his best movies capture that sense of empathy and sensitivity for the characters. Not to mention affection. And then what Cooper and shows Dak do with King Kong, they are like showmen. And they are like the best showmen. They are just... They show you a coherently streamlined spectacle that you can make sense of. It goes from A to B, and it all makes sense. There's The cogs are rotating perfectly. And it is just a perfect, epic adventure. Especially for people who are really passionate about that sort of genre. And then... With James Whale, there's a reason that he is so synonymous with the old Hollywood Universal horror movies. His style is unmistakable. He uses so much visual language and brings a lot of expressionism to the overall mood. And then Mervyn Leroy captures both the optimism and sadness that audiences were no doubt feeling during this time. There's a lot to be said about how audiences in 1933 going through the Great Depression just wanted escapism, just wanted to see fancy people doing a fancy thing and fancy clothes with fancy cars and all this money. And I feel like this movie knows how to comment on that while also delivering the sort of classy escapism that you would want or at least the audience from 1933 would want. And, like you said with Leo McCary, it is, first and foremost, a great comedy, and it also has style to back it up. And its style is perfectly fitting for comedy. McCary's style has a lot of forward momentum and verb, which really spices up the Marx Brothers comedy routine very well. I agree with you on that, apps, 100%. Next is Outstanding Production. All right. Well, my nominations for Outstanding Production are 42nd Street, Bombshell, Design for Living, Dinner at Eight, Duck Soup, Gold Diggers of 1933, King Kong, Little Women, The Private Life of Henry VIII, and State Fair. So I will say for 42nd Street, it's what we've been talking about is that it's the realism of trying to put on this play especially with the context of the Great Depression and how like, yeah, we need a lot of money. We, we want this show to succeed so we can have money so we can survive. Like everything about that, that movie just feels a sense of like, I love the stakes of it. I mean, yeah, of course, like the kind of romance bits are a little cheesy at times, but 
that it's it's all in the name that it just feels very true to what happens when you're putting on a play or a musical and just i just love the stakes of that bombshell i will say this about bombshell you know how hollywood always has a movie that's nominated that's about hollywood that's bombshell particularly i love how it's a satire on how far publicity will go to maintain a star's relevancy i mean yeah there's times where it can be a little too one note with a shouty witty style but if you look at it just on the broader aspects of it and see it's a complete satire of all that of the job of the publicist it, it it's definitely worth a watch and design for living i keep saying this it's just a wonderfully modern film that needs to be remade it's just the fact that it's this about this poly, platonic polynamorous relationship that is just seen in the most normal, healthy way possible. And I just love that concept. And it's, it's, I cannot say this enough. It needs to be remade. Please, somebody, some film studio, remake Design for a Living. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, God. All right. All right, move on. Dinner at eight. Again, it's like it's it's definitely one of those films that not much happens, but it's it's the performances overall and just every other aspect, like just from the design and from everything that goes on, particularly the performances that make the film work. And they and they bounce off each other very well. I just I really enjoyed every second of it. Then Duck Soup. It's just a great comedy that has influenced so many uh, films of today and in within the last 90 years. I mean, there's a reason why I often say that I, I, I that it's just a wonderful comedy that I mean, sure, the satire is not always particularly known. Like, people think it's a satire on war. Some people think it's a satire on dictatorship. If anything, it's it's a satire on anything that you want it to be because it just conveys so, like, it has it has a lot to say while still being true to the Marx Brothers uh, style of comedy. Gold Diggers of 1933, it's, it's like we been saying it's the it's the optimism and the pessimism of the great depression the optimism of having so much money as as well as like the realism of what was actually going on there and the fact that they were willing to have a lot of balls and actually conveying a lot of that particularly in that final number where you see the men going off the war and you mean and you see men coming back with like injuries and blood on their face it's like you don't see that from a lot of films from that time i it it's just wonderful that way and king kong i mean it's i don't know how else to put it there's a reason why it's so ubiquitous in our pop culture i mean even if you haven't seen it you know what it's about and and it's because of how the film just 
is just very passionate, like you said, Gabe, very passionate about creating that epic adventure film. And that's what that's what people still see to this very day. And we also have Little Women. Uh, again, Little Women is, it captures the spirit of the book. It's very much, it's warmth, idyllic childhood, and just even just the transformation of all, not just Joe, but all the sisters there. It's just captured so beautifully through basically everything that of every little detail of it. Then the private life of Henry VIII. It's, it's like we were saying, it's, it's the kind of comedy that really it's, it's not as like grotesque as something you say like South Park, but it's like, it's, but it's, it's, it's enough sophistication there that you can see like, hey, yeah, you can make fun of this guy who was, who was king and was kind of awful to his six wives. <laughs> and then State Fair, it's just a very simple story about a family that goes off to do all these days at the State Fair and the fact that they, nah, it, it's like I said before, it's like, it's just a very simple story that even Rogers and Hammerstein managed to get their hands on it and made a musical out of it. It's, it's just anything that could happen at a state fair, it did. I guess it is easy to see. I guess it kind of makes more sense now to me why something like State Fair was included into the National Film Registry because it did get a remake as a musical by Rogerson and Hammerstein. And I feel like that might have helped the property endure more. And all the other points you bring up about all the other Best Picture nominees stand true. And I just appreciate what What an interesting year this was, 1933. Like, there's so many good movies, some more known than others, and it's just so rich for movies that are high on, high on, ugh, movies that are high on entertainment value, but can also leave you thinking about something. That being said, my nominees are 42nd Streets, Design for Living, Dinner at Eights, Duck Soup, Gold Diggers of 1933, The Invisible Man, King Kong, Lady for a Day, Little Women, and The Private Life of Henry VIII. When it comes to the two Warner Bros. musicals I nominated, I just love the sheer kinetic energy in the shut spa. Like, they both fit, uh, they both fit perfectly in the depression era in which they were made. The scripts are really biting and they understand how good escapism really works. I love how the actors are all having a ton of fun in the roles. And I didn't mention Mervyn Leroy's direction of Gold Diggers of 1933 yet, but even though you know that this is about even though you know this is a Busby Berkeley movie in his choreography, both this and 42nd Street, I think the directors, both Mervyn Leroy and Lloyd Bacon, 
are able to put a stamp on the respective features and make them feel light on their feet in a way that may, in a way that they might not have been otherwise. I just love how joyous and fun the friendship is in Design for Living. And also that it acknowledges the difficulties the, and also that it acknowledges the difficulties that may come with an odd arrangement. And there's a sharp touch that only someone like only a director writer pairing like Lubitsch and Ben Hecht could come up with adapting a play from Noel Coward, his mind, the mind of Noel Coward. At some time. Yeah. Even with all the obvious wit going on. There's nothing judgmental about it. It's just so much fun. And then Dinner at Eight, it, it's just a riot full of observational comedy. That's what I think of it, just observations. Just these numerous characters interacting with each other at this dinner table. I Again, I love that setup. I love the premise. And George Cukor keeps things lively and spicy. And then Duck Soup, like you said, it's satire can be interpreted in so many ways, but it's not too vague for its own good. You could read it as a political satire or a satire against dictatorship and war. I think that's it. I think that is its ultimate appeal and power. And with The Invisible Man, there's just a certain old-fashioned charm and inherent watchability to these classic old Hollywood universal horror movies. Even though I'm not always consistently scared by a lot of them, per se, they have such a good understanding and command of atmosphere. And... I'm rarely ever bored watching them. And... King Kong, besides being just a great pioneering adventure epic monster horror film, I also felt at points like I was getting an, an occasional examination into human ego with a character like Carl Denham. And then Lady for a Day, just a sweet and also bittersweet character study with the sort of empathy that Frank Capra was known for. And then Little Women is as effective as an earlier adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's classic novel could be, for many reasons. And it balances the sort of fantasy that so many children and teenagers would like to be in during the most idyllic part of their childhoods and teenhoods, while also understanding hardships and bittersweetness and realism. And then Private Life of Henry VIII, like I said, it's just a fun romp and pokes so much fun at a central character who's basically a big man baby. 
without much regard for <laughs> the reality or how anyone isn't is thinking of him. I'm just thinking of that moment where he announces he has a new child and he says it in just such a tone deaf look at me sort of way and I laughed so hard during that scene but it doesn't feel particularly contemptful or contemptuous even with its satire against aristocracy. Yeah, those are my nominees. One thing I wanted to add about by the life of Henry VIII, can will you ever get an actor who resembles so much like the real Henry VIII than Charles Lawton playing it? Will you ever get another one? I mean, I'm sure you came close with like Damian Lewis in Wolf Hall, but it's like Charles Lofton is pretty much like with the makeup that he has, hair and makeup, he looks almost dead on as Henry VIII. And so I just love the accuracy they put into that. Yes, totally agree. Like, Maybe I've maybe seen one picture of the of portraits of Henry VIII, and I think Charles Lawton is the perfect physical resemblance to him. So next is time to announce our winners, starting back at sound recording, and then moving up to best picture. We'll take turns again. Do this, okay. For my winner of Best Sound Recording, I have Gold Diggers of 1933. And so... Same. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Why I have this as the winner is that, again, it's just the musical numbers just make it so, like, I guess this, this just goes back to having a hard time explaining about best sound recording. It's just, it just sounds good. <laughs> I guess there's no other way to say it. Like out of all them, this one is sounded the best. I mean, even the fact with Ginger Rogers singing We're in the Money in Pig Latin. I mean, oh, like it's just, just the amount of, of just the right amount of audio for it. That's right, it's not too harsh and it's not too soft and it's just right. Totally agree. Like, again, like I said, it just sounds good. And I feel like musicals, because of how many people joke about how musicals get so much Oscar nominations for its sound, I feel like they get taken for granted sometimes. It takes a, a lot of skill to make the songs sound good. And this movie is a prime example of that. So next is Best Cinematography. Yeah, the winner is King Kong. So the reason why I have this as the winner 
is we it's like we've been talking about before about King Kong being the epic adventure that's just full of passion and just about the human ego and I love how it's all conveyed throughout that cinematography just does everything about it just screams adventure. Agreed. I also have it as my winner for the same reasons. It just looks gorgeous. And it takes a remarkable amount of skill just to pull off some of those shots, I imagine. So next is Best Art Direction. All right. Best Art Direction I have as the winner, Gold Diggers of 1933. So it's it's just the, the amount of effort you put into a musical like Gold Diggers of 1933 and having the grand sets. And you can also say the same thing for 42nd Street. It's just everything about the grand sets that conveys both the optimism and the grim reality of the Great Depression. And I very much appreciate that, them conveying that. Agreed. I have Gold Diggers of 1933 as the winner for all the same reasons. Like that opening scene is enough for me to give it the win. But beyond that, just the studios, the the locations, the apartments, it all looks the way you would imagine it would and should. So next is Best Adaptation. All right, for Best Adaptation, I have as the winner, Little Women. So it's like we've been talking about it. The movie is a very, very good adaptation of the of the Louisa May Alcott novel. It they like it's it's like I've noticed with a lot of like movie adaptations of films, they don't always have to include everything in the book, but as long as you capture the spirit, that's all that matters, and that's what the 1933 version of Little Women did. And that's why I'm going to look at more adaptations, particularly the 1949 and the 1994 versions of it, and see if they convey very much the same spirit. Having watched the 1933 version, the 1994 version, and the Greta Gerwig version of 2019, I like them all. And if I want to rate them quickly, I'd say the 2019 version is the best for me, but 1933 is the second place, and 1994 is third place. I think they all fit well in their respective time periods of when they were made. And that said, my winner is also Little Women, for all the reasons you brought up. Like, Louisa May Alcott's novel, it's endured for a reason. It's just so timeless. So, ne so next is Best Original Story. All right, Best Original Story I have as winner, Duck Soup! That's right, my bias is showing again. 
But again, it's like I've said before, it is a great comedy, not just a great Marx Brothers comedy, it's just a great comedy in general. And you can look at, like, in terms of satire, it, you can be whatever you want it to be. And it's, and it just conveys so much of there. There's great jokes and great gags and just the overall story of just this dictator coming and just mucking everything up with his cohorts, even though two of them are spies from another country. It's just a great story there. Agreed. So my winner is actually King Kong. Even for just that final line alone, it was beauty that killed the beast. It is so poetic and it fits and it fits so well. And the whole story, while it may not seem overly complex, actually takes a lot of effort to put together and convince you what's happening on the screen. And I'm just invested in this sort of adventure story. I think it works incredibly well. And it's, you can see why it's become such an enduring property over the years. So next is Best Actress. All right, for Best Actress, I have the winner being Katherine Hepburn. Yeah, so Katherine Hepburn, I mean, it's, it's like I said before with her, she is such a versatile actress. I mean, not only is she very athletic, but she's just full of personality. Like, you just just conveys so many emotions as Joanne. It's all just believable. Like, she is basically the embodiment of Joe Marsh. And that's what I love about it. I mean, I'm Saoirse Ronan does come pretty close to being a Joe in my mind, and also Maya Hawke from the uh, PBS version. But Catherine Hepburn, there's a reason why she is a Joe. She will Joe, she will Joe it all the way. <laughs> Agreed. And uh, we've, I see that we've had a lot of correlation in our nominees and winners, and that this carries the trend because I also have her as my winner. For all the same reasons. She's just such an incredible character. As portrayed by Hepburn. She's so incredibly incredibly likable. And well-rounded. And she's better here than she is in Morning Glory. But we'll get to that. So next... Best Actor. Ah, best Actor I have as the winner is Groucho Marx. This is not my bias showing. Yeah, yeah, it totally is. Anyway, so Groucho Marx, it's, it's like I said before, he is a good actor. I mean, he is just a weirdly likable personality that you 
you don't even give a shit when you're being insulted by Groucho Marx because what what he's coming out of his mouth is just so incredibly witty that you don't realize that you're being insulted by him. And and I love how he's just commanding so much presence. Like even when he's insulting people, like it's it there's so much joy out of it. And also just he just wants to amuse himself. It's it's just a wonderful performance from him. Absolutely agreed. This is like it's the best it's the best type of comedic performance. Or he delivers insults so casually. He delivers his lines so casually. But with that certain tone that can make you pay attention to him. And also has some dramatic moments that he pulls off really well. But my winner is the Academy's pick, Charles Lawton for The Private Life of Henry V. Eighth. For basically many reasons as my pick for Catherine Hepburn for Little Women in, ha in the sense that it's just such a well-created character. And you were just fascinated by him the whole time, or at least I was, but I just enjoyed watching him going through all these shenanigans and it was just such a fun performance and I loved it. I so next is Best Director. All right. My winner for Best Director is George Cukor. It's basically for the reason why I listed as the nominee and that you also brought up too, is that, yeah, there's a, a certain intense style, but there's also the sense of empathy and sensitivity that is conveyed in so much of Little Women and also helps in overall capturing the spirit of the novel. Agreed. And I also have him as my winner for that very reason. The way he directs everything in the movie just comes together so well. So next up is the big one, Outstanding Production. All right. For Outstanding Production, I have winning is Little Women. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I'm sure people can probably have taken a shot through this. Like I said before, it's, it's definitely a very, very good adaptation of the classic novel by Louisa May Alcott. And I've said this before, and I'm going to say this again, probably for all of eternity, it captures the spirit of the novel. And everything about it, just all the elements come together to make this wonderful movie. Agreed. Capturing the spirit of the novel is a perfect summation of the movie. Even though the one critique I'd have of it is that the other March sisters other than Joe are a bit underdeveloped. But 
that's the only critique I'd, I'd have of it. But my winner is Gold Diggers of 1933. It's just a perfect summation of Warner Bros.'s musicals, especially from this time. It is just... It captures the spirit of 1933. It has a populism to it that captures 1933. I feel like it speaks a lot for 1933, and it's really as simple as that. Absolutely, Gabe. So, now that we have gone through everything, let's talk about Cavalcade, which is the actual Best Picture winner from 1932-33. I'm going to be perfectly honest and say I have not seen this film, and I do have a question for you. Do people, like, do the general public actually talk about this film outside of film Twitter? Uh, I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna talk about film in any capacity, and that leads you to the Oscars as it inevitably usually does, I guess you'll have to mention Cavalcade at some point. But yeah, this is not one that is. I really don't think this is one that is endured in the general public domain. Jeez. Or at least doesn't get publicly talked about. And honestly, for good reason. Eh, it is so aggressively mediocre. It's, I, have, I have my notes here. I wrote, Cavalcade feels like jingoistic propaganda for an especially conservative side of Britain. Uh, like, always letting us know how great and patriotic Brits are. There's no real cohesion or structure to the story. It transitions really jarringly between sequences. There's no sense of progression in the timeline. The sense of history is haphazard at best. Um, it's so bad that it, you flat out miss what many of the historical events it shows are. Like, the stupid reveal of the Titanic. Just it's so stupid. And I was waiting for something truly exciting or breathtaking. You get some Cold War scenes, but there's so little focus on them. Like, you don't get a sense of the real scope. You just get a score and some montages. It's anticlimactic and it's a letdown. Uh, the musical numbers serve no real purpose to the movie and just make it feel longer than it already is. The acting is... Either wooden, oh, the acting's either wooden, hammy, or both. Full of cartoonish British stereotypes. Diana Winyard, in particular, reminds me of like a less charismatic version of, say, Norma Shearer. And it looks expensive. It often has some beautiful shots, but otherwise, there's really nothing of value. Again, it's so aggressively mediocre. And. I can't say it doesn't deserve to be forgotten. But would you say that it's better than Crash? Uh, my most experience with Crash is like watching it when I was in high school, like 
staying up really late watching it and then I fell asleep watching it and didn't get up the other day and the next day until like nine and I was late for school that day oh, no. then I woke up oh dear oh dear well hmm uh, it's like I think I've seen bits of Crash I didn't think it was all that bad but I guess the I guess does Crash really deserve that that kind of reputation, but I'm sure that will be saved for when you cover 2005. <laughs> yeah. When I actually get around to seeing the movie, I'm actually kind of dreading it. Oh no. You can do it. <laughs> okay. I guess we can talk a bit about Catherine Hepburn winning for Morning Glory. I think this is kind of important because this was actually a really unpopular win, even for the time. Really? Oh, that's very interesting there. And it's like, wasn't this like one of her first films that she ever did? Or... I think her film debut was A Bill of Divorcement. And so... This was pretty early in her career. Yeah, because it's like, again, I've not seen Morning Glory, but it's like, I don't think, like, a lot of people do talk about Katherine Hepburn, whether it's like the film public or just the general public in general, but Morning Glory is not a title people bring up. <laughs> That's a thing. I'm sure you'll easily shed some light on that. Uh... You're, you're right. It is not a title that most people recognize, even aficionados of Catherine Hepburn. Uh, I actually explained to Zeta Short of the 300 Passions podcast uh, at one point. I had heard like some reports somewhere that they specific, RKO Pictures specifically pushed Hepburn, Hepburn's award campaign for this movie in particular and not Little Women because they wanted to find some way to salvage the flop, the commercial flop of Morning Glory. Oh, no. Oh, jeez. <sighs> you think that they would try to, I don't know, maybe push the one that actually was successful with people and one that people would remember? But, oh, RKO. Priorities. Just priorities. <laughs> uh, it's like Netflix, trying to push everything. <laughs> yes. Yes. But because I've not seen the film, how is Catherine in that film? Uh... It's, I can't say it's a good performance from her. Part of it is that the movie does, doesn't use her well. And this is honestly one of those movies where you can tell when an actor is less experienced than they would become in, later on. And this is just inessential. 
both in terms of her performance and the movie itself. There's just nothing of substance. I guess I've seen worse movies, but you really don't need to waste your time with this. Fair enough. And... I also wanted to... I wanted to bring up Cavalcade for another reason. This was, at the time, a box office bomb. Um, I posted this on my page, the alternate Oscars page, that people are talking about how no one sees the Oscar-nominated movies anymore. And I thought they should look up stuff like this, where nobody saw Cavalcade because they didn't see the fuss of the movie. Seriously? I knew the Oscars could be tone deaf at times, but that's ridiculous that a movie that was literally the, a bomb at the box office gets a nomination. Ugh, like, and did, how many nominations did uh, Cavalcade get? Four. Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Art Direction. It won all of them except Diana Winyard. Oh my god. Why? I mean, I get that the Oscars, like, you nominate films that chances are the general public has not heard of. Like, I never heard of The Father before that it, that film got nominated, but hey, it probably wouldn't help people at least say, hey, we get it to the box office, but a bomb like Calvocate, oh my god. That's, and four nominations for, at least for what you're telling me, it's like, I, I feel like the studio execs were really trying to push that just so they can get more box office numbers. I mean, would that be the case in this? Uh, well, to be fair, Cavalcade, I think, was critically acclaimed for back in 1933, at least. So I'm not terribly surprised. And I think in our modern day and age, we've become more used to in a way, more used to movies that don't get seen widely by the public doing well at the Academy, like films like The Hurt Locker, Moonlight, and The Year We Just Had. Uh, but this is interesting. Cimarron is another case where it, it lost money for the studio, but still did well at the Oscars. This is not really a new thing, to be honest. Yeah, fair enough. And... Next up... There were some unmentionables from this book that I always look to on the Internet Archive. I'll post a link in the description when this episode is up. So, several months before the awards ceremony, a score of Academy members resigned in protest. The studios had called for a 50% pay cut in the aftermath of FDR's bank holiday, a desperate measure to steady the, the economy. The writers were the first to walk, forming their own union, this Green Writers Guild. They were followed by some of the biggest stars in the industry who founded this Green Actress, Actress Guild. I'm actually glad that I 
uh, like post of the unmentionables, uh, unmentionables, and this one in particular. I feel like this is something that we should be talking about for some reason. about the Screen Actors Guild is the Writers Guild is still around, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think it's called the Writers Guild of America, but... Okay. Yeah, definitely, considering that both of them are still around and that we should at least know the origins of why we have them. And I'm glad we still have them, even if it's just another, like, Another award ceremony, particularly with the SAG. Agreed. And I think it's an important thing about uh, thinking about talks of a labor strike we have nowadays. Like, like the work system has become so bad in various areas. And Another one, Will Rogers, humorist and political activist, uh, died in a plane crash while touring the outer reaches of Alaska with Brendan Aviation Pioneer Willie Post in the summer of 1935. A noted quipster, he, he co coined the line, I never met a man I didn't like. He was fond of telling his audiences, I don't make jokes, I just watch the government and report the facts. <laughs> so much like The Onion. God, the living embodiment of the onion. <sighs> well, we had him a little longer. Just a little longer. I'll bring up his... I'll bring up an interesting fact about the... Another interesting fact about the ceremony having to do with Walt Rogers in a sec, but... Yeah, he seems like someone I need to look up more because he sounds like an interesting man. And uh, when a failing Irving Thalberg took a year off after a heart attack, he was replaced by Louis B. Mayer's son-in-law, David O. Selznick, which resulted in the anonymous wags commenting, the son-in-law also rises. Uh, uh, I, had, I had no idea that uh, David O. Selznick was Louis B. Mayer's son-in-law, but that actually... Neither did I. Yeah, makes sense. I I can see where, uh, yeah, makes, yeah, it's like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense of how he became huge at MGM and then went over to make a, his own film studio. Make yeah, United Artists, yeah. yeah. And despite her, another one, despite her many censures and vehement attacks, from the pulpit, Mae West managed to save Paramount from bankruptcy with a huge success of her films. She arrived in Hollywood at the age of 40, took an apartment three blocks from the studio, and maintained that residence until her death at 87. In later years, she had her number listed on in the Los Angeles phone directory and often answered fan calls herself. That is pretty awesome. I mean, the fact that she was able to do all that, it's... Huh. Well, it's like... Uh, that's just that's just really awesome and just how uh it's almost like relatable how much she's willing to really expose herself yeah i think it's kind of sweet that 
she respected the admiration from her fans, as it seems. And honestly, when it comes to saving Paramount from bankruptcy, I'm reminded of that and the runner-up this episode where they briefly discussed how Deanna Durbin vehicles basically saved Universal from bankruptcy. And now some of those move some of her movies are important in that regard. Well that makes sense. Okay, so here's one I really wanted to mention. Uh so there were two Franks nominated for Best Director. And when the winner was revealed, Will Rogers didn't specify which Frank it was. And he just said, Come and get it, Frank. And Frank Capra thought he won he had won when it was really Frank Lloyd. Lloyd. <laughs> and it was so funny. It must have been really just <laughs> the most out-of-body experience for a lot of people at that ceremony. Seeing that gaff rolling out and play uh, unfolding in real time. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a while back and but I love how Will Rogers like was like, hey, let's get all the other nominees up just so it'd be, it'd be less embarrassing. Here, let's have a good laugh on that. And also, I was just thinking, like, you think that was the gaffe? I love how, in a way, it sets up the gaffe of the 2017 Oscars. Like, you thought the 1933 Oscars were, uh, were, uh, that was a, that gaffe there, that, that's, that paved the way for the gaffiest gaff 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 that there ever was have at the 2017 Oscars. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Those moments live on. <laughs> yes. From a simple misunderstanding of which Frank to call up to accidentally having the best actress category when it was actually for best picture. Ah, and I swear those people are never going to let, we're never going to live that, let that live that down. So, now we are going to answer questions from the audience. So, from Best Picture Cast. Is King Kong one of the biggest Best Picture nominee snubs of all time? Puns allowed. Oh, jeez. I mean, I I like to think of myself as like the pun princess here, but oh, God. Let's see. Well, I guess you could say the nomination was snatched away from like uh, someone snatching a banana away from a monkey. But, oh, I need to come up with better pun than that. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yes, I would say King Kong is one of his biggest 
one of the biggest best picture nominees snubs of all time yes uh, totally deserved the nomination even if i understand why it didn't get nomination given the academy's sort of hot and cold mixed history with blockbusters At least the Academy did recognize it for its uh, technical work, so at least it got recognized. Um, it didn't. I don't think it did. I don't think it got any nominations. Really? Not even recognized the Academies? I must have. Oh, I don't think it, it didn't. I checked and it didn't. Oh, okay. That, 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 that blows. You'd think they would have at least nominated for something in there, but. That sucks. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Um, James Brown uh, asked basically the same question: King Kong, best picture? Why not? Uh, same as I said. They just sort of have a bias against that type of movie. And then. Um, Ronaldo Souza asked, Why do you think the Academy ignored Design for Living despite other Lubitsch films doing very well during this period? I think it's pretty obvious. The fact that it's promoting in the most positive and normalized light of a polyamorous relationship. Because that's the thing I've noticed also with the Academies is that they promote certain values over others. Given like the time period, I can understand why they might be a little hard to recognize polyamorous relationships. I do see your point. Even for 1933, this was a year before the production code really went into effect. And I did read somewhere that it was very controversial even for the time. And I completely understand why. But I do still think it's kind of odd. Just given his pedigree, you have Frederick Marsh, Gary Cooper, Miriam Hopkins, Ernst Lubitsch, Ben Hecht, adapting an all coward play. You'd think the ingredients would be there, regardless of its controversy. But at the same time, you kind of get why it wasn't nominated. Because threesomes were not exactly the most common thing in the world in 1933, at least in terms of what society expected and was comfortable with. And when you look at the other Ernst Lubitsch films that did well during this period, you had your typical male-female relationships a lot of the time, except maybe The Smiling Lieutenant, where there was absolutely a thing going on with Claudette Colbert and Marion Hopkins. I have not seen The Smiling Lieutenant, but yeah, no, now I'm curious. <laughs> Definitely check it out. <laughs> it's so much fun. We'll do anything with more Chevalier, even if it's just him smiling about the time and just singing. I'm totally down with that. And then Zeta Shorts asked, should Barbara Stanwyck have received the Best Actress nomination? She made four movies in 1933, but I assume that the ones that may come to mind 
for most of us would be Babyface and the Bitter Tea of General Yen. I can't exactly answer that question because I've not seen those Barbara Stanwyck films. No. I don't know. Even though I did not nominate her ultimately, I would not say she's undeserving of a nomination from this year. If only because she is Barbara Stanwyck and just has such a unique presence. And I think Babyface and the Bitter Tea of General Yen are interesting contrasts in terms of what she could do. So yeah, I do think she was nomination worthy in 1933. Okay. And then Fritz and the Oscars asked, we kind of answered this already, but why Kate for Morning Glory and not Little Women? Yeah, I know. I know. It, 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 from what you said about Morning Glory, it doesn't sound like it's one of her better performances, where it's like, there's a reason why people talk about Katherine Hepburn in Little Women in general. And even like of it's one of her better known performances and it's one that sticks into people's minds. Yeah. Morning Glory is not exactly Philadelphia story or The Lion in Winter or Alice Adams. Or even really any of the other films she was nominated for. The only comparison I could make in terms of its status of recognition and publicity was would probably be The Rainmaker, which was a movie she did with Burt Lancaster. And it's, it seems like it's been forgotten about. Uh, and it's kind of just there. I actually haven't seen it, The Rainmaker. But, yeah. Catherine Epper did say that the right actors win for the wrong movies. Uh, I'm glad she acknowledged that. <laughs> so, Emily, thank you so much for appearing on this podcast. I had a wonderful time talking with you about all this. Absolutely, and I had a great time being on here, Gabe. Thank you for inviting me. You're so welcome. Uh, so, how do we find you online, on social media? So, you can find me on Twitter with the handle at EJB, as in boy, 0092. You can also find me on Instagram, Emily underscore Blakowski. That is B as in boy, L-A-K-O-W-S-K-I. And if you want to see any of my uh, book reviews on my website, you must go to chickwhoreadseverything.com. And there I also have movie reviews of adaptations like A Tree Grows in Brooklyn and Where'd You Go, Bernadette? Oh, and The Hate You Give, too. That's good. So, you can find me on Twitter at Gabe the Spade with two underscores. 
you can find me on Instagram under my usual name with an underscore in between. That's Gabe underscore Guarin. You can find me on Letterboxd as Mr. Hulo because that was when I was just writing things and not putting any thought into them. I've actually not seen Mr. Hulo's Holiday, and I guess I look forward to it, but I'm kind of embarrassed about that. So, and then for the Alternate Oscars, you can find the page on Twitter at Alternate Oscars. Be sure to rate and review this podcast for visibility's sake. And until next time, sit back, relax, cheers, enjoy. And thank you for listening to the alternate Oscars.